وعليكم السلام حيدون الحمد لله If you want to put it on this side, mm -hmm. perfect. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wa al-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. We're going to start our um, program specifically for the sisters, inshallah, after uh, the talk. I will leave some time for you guys to ask questions, inshallah. Uh, the title of the talk is A Diamond in the Rough. And we'll be looking at the uh, life of Um Habiba or some portions of her life. So let me just start with uh, this phrase, A Diamond in the Rough. I know that we've probably heard this phrase before. Um, but the phrase refers to uh, someone or something that has a hidden exceptional qualities and characteristics or future potential, but currently lacks the, the final touches that would make them truly stand out from the crowd. Diamonds are quite ordinary at first glance, but their beauty is only recognized through the process of cutting and polishing. So when we say a diamond in a rough, we're talking about someone who has potential to be great. However, the circumstances and situations have yet to present themselves to bring out that greatness. And in the Islamic tradition, this is the exact meaning of the process of what we call fitna or ibtila. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us. All right, my, my students, they always ask me, well, um, Brother Shadid, if, if Allah already knows whether we believe or not, then why does he test us? All right, seems like a logical question. Why does Allah test us if he already knows what we're going to do? Allah tests you to make you better. You will only realize how great you are when you're tested. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We... Many of us cannot see who we will be after we go through some type of tumultuous situation. We only know who we are or how great we are, how exceptional we are after 
the situation is over with. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not restricted by time. So Allah already knows how great we are. And this is why he handpicks, hand selects the tests that bring out the best in us. All right. And sometimes we run away from those tests because we don't realize our own potential. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us ibtila, tests, fitan, trials, tribulations um, to bring out the best in us. Greatness is an evolutionary process that happens or starts with the challenges that we endure. I'll say that again. Greatness is an evolutionary process that starts when we endure challenges. One of the great dilemmas of our time is the amount of concentration that we place on studying the great men of the early Islamic community. While unfortunately overlooking the volumes of women whose legacies have shaped the narrative of Islam past and present. I think it is oxymoronic for Muslim men to study the great men of Islam and women to have their own women halakas and studying the great women of Islam. I, I, I think that's counterproductive. I think we should be studying the opposite. I think Muslim women should be studying the great men of Islam and the men should be studying the great women of Islam to give us a greater appreciation for the opposite sex. Don't you think? I, I just think that that makes more sense. But in the brothers' halaqa, you'll find brothers, the great men of Islam, and they're doing all this great in-depth study of all of the great men of Islam. And, you know, it still does not change the way that we interact with our wives, our daughters, the women in the community. As a matter of fact, it might only add to the egotistical belief, the self-delusional belief that I'm a great man, right? It's not studying the great men of the Sahaba doesn't humble us. It actually makes us, in many instances, more arrogant. Where I think, you know, vice versa with the Muslim women, I think if women want to be better wives and better daughters and, you know, better women to their men, I think it's, you know, imperative that they study men so that they create for themselves expectations. Right? Many women go into marriages with men and you have no expectations of him. Whatever he offers, whatever he brings to the table, that's what it is. And I'm somehow obligated Islamically to just accept that because that's what he offers. That's what he's bringing to the table. You set no bar, no standard, no expectations. All right. A man will only go as far as the bar that you set for him. And so seeing as though this lecture, although there are men here, I'm talking to the women. So don't mind them. This, is, this conversation is between us. And I'm going to say some things that some men might be offended by. But guess what? I don't care. Not that I don't care. It's just that I believe that in the Islamic community, we don't invest enough time in empowering our women. Especially not from the men's side. We don't invest a lot of time in the Prophet um, he invested time. Women came to him and said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, all of the men have taken up all of your time. Set aside a day for us where you will teach us from what Allah has taught you. 
And the Prophet set aside a day where he would go and he would teach the women. That's investment in our communities, which we don't really find today. So I think that, you know, this is one of the dilemmas of our time uh, in the Islamic community. Unfortunately, we overlook the volumes of women whose lives and legacies have shaped the narrative of Islam, both past and present, during some of the most difficult and tumultuous times, which would ultimately serve as a blueprint for the resilience and faith and tenacity um, for succeeding generations of women, as well as men, especially in today's time where many Muslim women are just utterly confused about what the true embodiment of faith is, what it actually looks like. You have, you know, posts on Instagram and it's just really unfortunate. And, you know, women covered, you know, uncovered proper, um, improperly and making testaments and making comments about what their faith is and, you know, their practice of Islam. And I'm not doubting that. I'm not countering that. But what I am saying is that it looks a pretty, it looks pretty oxymoronic that, you know, you have on tight jeans, you have a shirt that is showing, you know, your body and your hair, you know, the hijab, the stingy hijab where it comes back a little bit and you can see the, the baby hairs and you want to show everybody you got good hair. Got it. I got it. But you are making proclamations and claims about what your faith is and how strong you are in your belief, but it's not manifesting. Your, your, your statements, your captions are actually contradictory. Not saying that your entire faith revolves around the way that you dress, but some of it does. Some of it does. So there's actually a lot of confusion. And the Prophet ﷺ described the woman. I want you guys to listen to this. The Prophet ﷺ, he described the women, a woman in her essence as a rib. The Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّ الْمَرْأَ خُلِقَتْ مِنْ ضِلْعٍ that the woman was created from a rib. I want you to think about that metaphor for a second, right? And this implies, if the woman is created from a rib, this implies that her nature is to be unique, to be different. A rib is curved. That means that it's different, it's not straight. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said towards the ending of the hadith, in the habta tuqimaha kasartaha. He said, and if you go and you try to straighten the rib, you're going to break it. Meaning a man who forces his woman to be more like him in order to make himself comfortable, he's going to end up breaking her. He said, and to break her is to divorce her. That's the ultimate level of, you know, fracture is to be broken, is to be divorced. And, you know, this was alluded to in the Qur'an when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded to Maryam's mother when she thought that she was carrying a son, but then when she gave birth to the child, it turned out to be a daughter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَمَّا وَضَعَتْهَا قَالَتْ رَبِّ إِنِّي وَضَعْتُهَا أُنْثَى وَاللَّهُ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا وَضَعَتْ فَلَيْسَ الذَّكْرُكَ الْأُنْثَى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captures this conversation between Maryam's mother and himself that when she delivered the child, she said, oh my Lord, I gave birth to a girl. She thought she was carrying a boy. I gave birth to a girl. 
And Allah says, Allah knows better what you gave birth to. The male and the female are not the same. Meaning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sisters, Allah put you here not to do what men can do in order to establish your validation and substantiation. Allah put you here to do things that men can't do. That is where your greatness lies. Your greatness doesn't lie in the fact that I can do what a man can do. I'm on par with, you know, my counterpart from the opposite sex. That doesn't make you unique. If two people are the same, one of you is irrelevant. So you want to be like men? <laughs> then what's the difference? If two people are the same, one of you are irrelevant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put you here to do what men can't do. So this is establishing your uniqueness. Rather, the woman is curved as a rib, which is indicative of her grace and her wisdom as she approaches life with a different perspective than, that is a lot different than that of men. She is the only creature who can organically, and I say organically because now with all of the technology and you know, gender changing and transitioning, um, it won't be long before you know, men will be giving birth to women. Men will be giving birth to children. All right? And they're working on it. And shaitan is definitely assisting them in that process. But the woman is the only creature who can organically take a seed in its most microscopic state and nurture that seed until it becomes a fully functioning human being replete with faculties, the most important of which is the heart which she continues to nurture throughout that child's development until it allows that child to actualize the fundamental purpose of their lives. There's no other creature in, in, in the world that can do that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَاللَّهُ أَخْرَجَكُمْ مِن بُطُونِ أُمَّهَاتِكُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ شَيْئًا وَجَعَلَ لَكُمُ السَّمْعَ وَالْأَبْصَارَ وَالْأَفْئِدَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ That Allah is the one who brought you forth from the wombs of your mothers knowing absolutely nothing. And then he gave you sight in hearing and understanding so that perhaps you may arrive at a station of gratitude. So as we skim through the life of this woman that we're going to study today, uh, I want us to pay close attention to, you know, her grace, her patience, her resilience, her reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As she navigates her way through one of the most difficult times in her life. Only to arrive at the highest station that a woman could arrive at during that time. And that is to be honored with the title of Ummu Hatan Mu'minin. The mother of the believers. The woman that we're going to study today or talk about a little bit today. Her name was Ramla bint Abi Sufyan. She's the daughter of Abu Sufyan, Ibn Harb, and she grew up a part of pre-Islamic Arabia's ruling elite class. She was from the tribe of Bani Kinana, one of the sub-tribes of Mecca's uh, hegemonic tribe known as Quraysh. Her father was Abu Sufyan, who would later become the Prophet's nemesis and who would eventually become a Muslim himself. Her mother was Safiya bint Abil As, who was actually the uh, 
maternal aunt of Uthman ibn Affan. This was her upbringing. This was where she came from. All right? When the Prophet ﷺ received revelation Iqra, she was only 17 years old. So keep in mind everything that transpires in her life as we discuss. We're talking about a woman who, when the Prophet ﷺ had that first interaction with Jibreel, Iqra, she was only 17 years old. A kid. This being her upbringing, there was a certain expectation that her family and her community had of her. Once the Prophet ﷺ went public with his message of Tawheed. The expectation is that you follow the status quo. As it, is said to, as it was said to Maryam when she arrived at the doorstep of her community with her child in tow, unmarried. As they said to Maryam, Ya ukhta Harun, ma kana abukim ra'asawin wa ma kanat ummuki baghiya. Oh, sister of Harun, she's coming with her child to the community after being gone for some time and then she pops up out of nowhere with a child. And the community immediately rushed with judgment. Why? Because the expectation is that you should be following your mother and your father. That's the expectation, the status quo. Your father was not lewd or licentious. Nor was your mother unchaste. How could you do this? This was in addition to the way that women were viewed in pre-Islamic Arabian culture. Women were not seen as people who were autonomous and capable of managing their own affairs. Hence the fact they were inherited like property. Until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shifted the social paradigm to giving the woman her own autonomy and choosing who she wanted to be with. Unfortunately, cultural Islam has resorted back to that same type of thinking wherein the woman does not have the autonomy to choose who she wants to be with. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nisa, Surah number 4, 19, Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la yahillu lakum an tarithu nisa kurha wa karaha that, oh, you who believe, it is not permissible. It is not permissible for you to inherit women against their own will. And this was in reference to a pre-Islamic behavior where if a woman was married to a man and that man died, his brother, his father automatically inherited the woman. She didn't have a right to decide what her fate was going to be, what her life was going to be. The brother, the father of the husband who died automatically inherited her like she was property. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited that. Given a woman the autonomy, as the Prophet sallallahu said, uh, that the virgin woman should not be married except with her permission. That the virgin woman is not married except with her permission. And the woman who is a matron who has been married before, she has more right to decide who she wants to marry than her own father. The Prophet said, That the thayyib, the woman who is a matron who has been married before, she has more right to decide who she wants to marry than her own wali, than her father. That is not to say that the father does not marry her. That means her choice in a spouse is hers. Islam gave her that. 
So while you have Muslim women fighting for women's rights under the banner of, you know, feminism, your issue is not fighting for women's rights. All of the rights that are yours have been laid out for you in the Quran and the Sunnah. Your right to your fight today is to make Muslim men acknowledge those rights and give them to you. Your fight is not for women's rights. Allah gave you everything. Allah gave you your autonomy. However, that has been overshadowed by uh, the cultural nuances that has defined much of our practice of Islam. So for her to embrace Islam, for Ramla to now see the Prophet ﷺ emerge with the da'wah of Islam and for her to now take it upon herself to go against the status quo, to go against the expectation of her family and to embrace the message of the Prophet ﷺ despite all of the social and familial red tape that speaks volumes for her awareness and her independence and her personal fortitude. Some women know that what their families are doing is wrong and as a result of that, they don't want to go against the grain of what is incorrect. And you have to understand what Tawheed does. Tawheed revolutionizes you as a human being because you are constantly putting God first while any and everybody else comes second. That is revolutionary. Because we are constantly fighting in our entire lives to put everybody where they belong while, while God remains at the head. God remains in front. And there are constantly people, including husbands, who try to take precedence over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You do not come before God. You don't come before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That means that I don't obey you in disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it speaks volumes for, you know, to her independence, her awareness, her personal fortitude. And these are the type of qualities that Islam came to enhance and perfect. The Prophet ﷺ said, تَجِدُونَ النَّاسِ مَعَادٍ كَمَعَادِ الذَّهَبِ وَالْفِضَّةِ وَخِيَارُكُمْ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْجَهِلِيَةِ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْجَهِلِيَةِ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ ذَا فَقِهُ The Prophet ﷺ said, you will find people with qualities and characteristics like the different metals that the earth produces whether gold or silver, this is how you will find the characters of human beings. He said, and the best in jahiliyyah, those who had good qualities prior to Islam, will have those same qualities in Islam, provided they get an understanding of the religion. Meaning Islam does not expect from us, Allah does not expect from us to suppress the qualities, the good qualities that we have to make other people comfortable. Islam enhances that and Islam encourages that. So if a woman, for example, is assertive, if a woman, for example, is tenacious, a woman is example, she has all of these great qualities. She marries a man who is insecure and the expectation is for her to suppress those qualities to make him feel more comfortable. When in fact Islam says, no, those qualities should be enhanced, should be perfected because that is what is going to make you great. But the expectation is for you to dumb yourself down so I feel great. You guys following me? Am I putting you to sleep? Okay. And so a woman should not be asked to suppress these qualities to make her spouse feel more secure. That is not love. Love does not require for you to change who you are. That's not love. That's exploitation. 
I'm exploiting you. I'm using you to make myself feel better. That's not love. Once Quraysh's efforts to thwart the influence of the Prophet's message over Mecca you know, begin to intensify, the Prophet instructed a small group of early Muslims to seek asylum, to seek refuge in Abyssinia. That means that Islam's first connection to anything outside of Arabia was with Africa. You think about that for a moment. And so the Muslims migrated from Mecca to uh, Ethiopia. He said there you will find a king who will not allow oppression. And this was the fifth year after Hijrah. The first migration, the first Hijrah. There were two Hijrahs to Ethiopia. The first was in the fifth year after Hijrah when there were 12 men and four women who migrated from Mecca to Ethiopia. And then there was a second migration in the 10th year after Hijrah, after the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ died, Abu Talib, and Quraysh began to step up and intensify their efforts um, to do harm to the Prophet ﷺ and the believers. So from these 12 men and four women that left Mecca, and they didn't leave all at once, they left small groups little bit at a time so as to not awaken Quraysh. And from amongst these 12 men and four women, there was the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Ruqayyah, and her husband, Uthman ibn Affan. And then there was Umm Habiba and her husband, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh, along with their daughter, Habiba. So she was 17 when the Prophet received revelation. Five years later, she leaves Mecca, her home. She converts to Islam. She's married. She has a child. And then she leaves Mecca heading towards Ethiopia. How old was she when she went to Ethiopia? 17 plus 5 is what? 22. 22 years old. All of this in a five-year period. 22 years old. Think about the average 22-year-old girl in our communities today. Marriage is probably the furthest thing from her mind. The only thing she's concentrating on is graduating from college with a degree. So I can say I have my master's degree, I have my bachelor's degree, and only to you know, eventually end up marrying somebody and staying home and having children and never pursuing any of your ambitions or your dreams in life. So what was it all for? So are we using going to college and delaying marriage as much as we can to give us time, a grace period for us to enjoy our lives? So has marriage really looked at as some type of prison cell for Muslim women in the community? Is that what it is? SubhanAllah, this is what we have reduced marriage to? It's, it's really sad, man. It's really sad what we have done to this religion. So she migrates with her husband. Her husband was Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh. He's the brother of Zainab bint Jahsh, who the Prophet ﷺ eventually married as well later on. So Zainab leaves with her daughter and her husband. They arrive at the shores of Ethiopia. And although they arrived at the shores of Ethiopia safe and sound, protected, uh, um Habiba's um, safety and security and happiness would slowly dwindle right in front of her eyes. She narrates in her own words. She said, "Ra'aytu fil manam ka'anna ubaid Allah 
زوجي بأسوأ صورة وأشوهها ففزعت فقلت في نفسي والله تغيرت حاله she said when I finally when I finally arrived in Ethiopia she said I had a dream now you think that you made it right I left Mecca I'm here with my husband my daughter we're all safe and now another problem happens this is where your greatness starts to unfold because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now testing you. Sometimes we think that we've made it, I got it. And then this test follows you. And you're like, if only it wasn't for this, but you don't realize that if it wasn't for that, you, you can't get to the greatness that you are seeking, that you are pursuing without that. That is a necessary component to your journey. She sees in a dream, and she sees her husband in a dream, he's disformed and disfigured. And she said she woke up, she's scared, she woke up, and she said, Wallahi, something has changed about my husband. He came, she said that I woke up in the morning and my husband calls me and he says to me, before I converted to Islam, I was a Christian. And I didn't see any religion better than Christianity. And then Muhammad came with his message of Tawheed and it seemed like it was the right thing to do. I converted to Islam. He said, but now I return back to Christianity. And that's what it is. Some of the scholars differ as, a, as it relates to whether or not this narration is authentic. But what we do know is that she ended up losing her husband because he ended up dying. So whether he converted to Christianity, reverted back to Christianity or not, is neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that the end result of that was that she ended up by herself. That, that's the point here. So she said to her husband, قُلْتُ وَاللَّهِ مَا خَيْرٌ and she said that there's no good that can come to you for doing this. And then he eventually, you know, died. He began drinking. The narration mentioned that he began drinking. And then he eventually, he died. So Um Habiba, so whether he apostated from Islam or not, we do know that he died at some point when they arrived at Abyssinia. She said, وَقَدْ أَصَابَنِي مِنْ ذَلِكَ عَظِيمَتَيْنِ she said that I was afflicted with so much grief, so much grief and so much stress as a result of that. And the Prophet ﷺ, he mentioned in another hadith, مَا يُصِيبُ الْمُسْلِمْ مِن نَصَبٍ وَلَا وَصَبٍ وَلَا هَمٍ وَلَا حُزْنٍ وَلَا أَذَنٍ وَلَا غَمٍ حَتَّى الشَّوْكَ يُشَاكُهَا إِلَّا كَفَرَ اللَّهُ بِهَا الْخَطَايَ That pain is part of the process to greatness. Look at anyone who has arrived at any state of greatness or station of success, there has always been some pain involved in that. Otherwise, you don't appreciate the journey. If you get there with no pain involved, you're not going to appreciate it. We appreciate the trials and tribulations that Allah give us. At the time, it is very difficult to process. But when we get to the end of our journey, we appreciate the trials and the struggles along the way because that's all a part of why we ended up where we ended up.
She said that I was afflicted with so much grief and stress. Here's this young 22-year-old woman who loses her husband. She's in a foreign land with her child, newborn, just converted to Islam. And she's afflicted with all of these challenges. And sometimes the challenges, they mount up and you can't see past them. They're like a mountain in front of you. But know that the pain that you experience has value. The Prophet ﷺ said, لا يصيب Muslim That no Muslim is affected with nasabun, with fatigue, tiredness. ولا وصبن, يعني مردن, or any sickness. ولا همن, nor any stress. ولا غمن, ولا حزنن, nor any grief or stress or anxiety. Even physical pain, he said, even the prickling of a thorn. Except that Allah is removing sin from you. So even though we're suffering pain, emotional pain, physical pain, mental anguish, no matter what it is, your pain is not without virtue. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still removing sin from you because of the pain that you are experiencing. And this... Knowing this helps us to process what we are experiencing. So she's a 22-year-old 20, young woman, a new convert, a new mother, in a new land, with a new experience, and now she lost her husband. She actually could have gone back to her old life, but she chose to endure her situation. Her faith was taking her to places that she could have never imagined. And your faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the potential to do that. And she didn't run away from her greatness. She embraced it. Some women, when they see all of these challenges mounting up in front of them, they want to look for the closest asylum, the closest place of refuge. Because there I can go and I can be safe. You are running away from your greatness. Embrace it. It's part of the process. We want to get to the end of our journey and say, well, I'm successful, I did this and I did that without embracing everything that comes along with that journey. All of the pain, all of the anxiety, all, everything that comes along, the stress, everything that comes along with that. That's all part of the journey. Embrace it. Stop running away from your greatness. And I mean, like, her situation is, you know, as I'm, I was preparing this, I'm, I'm looking at her situation. I'm like, her situation resembles another great woman who ended up in the same situation. Who? Who, who else? What other woman ended up in a situation like this? Hajar. Hajar could have never expected marrying Prophet Ibrahim that she would end up in the middle of the desert with her son, him leaving, even when he was walking away, she said, Ila aina ya Ibrahim. Where are you going, Ibrahim? You're going to leave us here in the middle of the desert? Ibrahim couldn't even turn around and look at her. And then she asked him, Allahu amraka bihada. Did Allah tell you to leave us here? And he nodded his head. And she said, Idhab idhan fa innahu la yudhiyana. Go. Go do what Allah told you to do. If Allah told you to leave us here, Allah got me. Allah will never leave me here to die and starve with my newborn child. And this woman runs in between the hills of Safa and Marwa 
embracing the pain of that situation. But look how great she became in the end. If you perform Hajj and Umrah, you have to make the Sa'i between, or you have to make the, the Sa'i, right? Between Safa and Marwa. Your Hajj is not complete without it. Your Umrah is not complete without it. It actually has now become an act of worship in our deen to commemorate this woman for what she did. But that was a part of the process. The same thing with Um Habiba. She ended up in this situation. She could have turned back. She was from the elite of Mecca. She could have just returned, took a boat with her daughter, went back to Mecca, embraced you know, the idolatry of her forefathers, and said, well, this, this religion is a little too much for me. I lost my husband. I'm in this foreign land with people who are Christians. I don't, I don't even know these people. I got my daughter. We could have, she could have used a ton of excuses. But she didn't run away from it. She embraced it. She embraced it. And some of us, especially women, we run away from the pain. But in the pain is our greatness. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, لا يلدغ مؤمن في جحر مرتين The believer does not get stung in the same hole twice. Why? Because in the pain is your lesson. You don't get stung in the same hole twice. You stick your hand in a hole. You get stung by something. You're not going to stick your hand in it. The lesson is in the pain. Stop running away from it. It's part of your journey. And so she remains in this situation for some time. Just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala carried the voice of Ibrahim alayhi salam when Allah told him, أَذِّنْ فِي النَّاسِ And convey to the people the act of worship of Hajj. Ibrahim turns to Allah and says, How are the people going to hear me? My voice is just my voice. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Call the people to make Hajj. I will make sure people hear your voice. I will amplify your voice. And we are still hearing Ibrahim's voice today. Anybody who purchased their ticket to go make Hajj has heard the voice of Ibrahim salam. And just as Allah carried the voice of Ibrahim around the world to people come, as Allah says in the Quran, yet to karijalan, wa kulli damiri min kulli fajin amik. That people will come to you from all corners of the world, on feet, on riding animal. I will amplify your voice and make sure everybody hears you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala carried Um Habiba's situation the same exact way to the heart of a man who saw her as a diamond in the rough. The Prophet ﷺ, after some time, Um Habiba, she saw in another dream. This is where her greatness begins to unfold. She said, فدخلت علي فقالت إن الملك يقول لك إن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كتب إلي أن أزوجك إياه 
She said, I saw in a dream that someone was calling me from a distance and they called out to me saying, oh, mother of the believers. This is a title that was conferred on any woman that married the Prophet Allah doesn't take something away from you except that he replaces it with something even better. The Prophet said, Man that whoever leaves something for the pleasure of Allah, Allah will replace it with what is better. Allah removes someone from your life. He's only making room for the right person in your life. But we keep running after the person. Oh, this person made me this promise. Oh, this man promised me this. Oh, he promised me he was going to do that. And you're crying and your heart broken. Let it go. If the person left your life, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed that to happen to make room for the right person. I saw a meme the other day. It said that, you know, there's some men that are in the DMs of their woman while I am in the istikhara of the woman. We are not the same. We are not the same. I don't want to be in your DM. I want to be in your istikhara. We're not the same. If a man loves you and he truly respects you, he's going to go about it the right way. He's going to go about it the honorable way. He's going to honor you and do it the right way. She said, I saw in a dream that someone called out to me, Um al-Mu'mineen, O mother of the believers. She said, and I woke up scared and I interpreted the dream that the Prophet was eventually going to marry me. So this was Bushra, this was some glad tidings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that even in our deepest, darkest moments, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still finds a way to give us some glad tidings, to give us an opportunity to look towards the future. It's just your responsibility to see it. Signs are right in front of us, but sometimes we're so blinded by what is physical around us, we can't see the spiritual signs. Allah says about the non-Muslims, That how many signs are there in the heavens and the earth that they pass by on a day-to-day basis while they're completely heatless? You can't even read the signs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends us signs over and over again. It's our responsibility to read them when we see them. This was a sign. She said, I interpreted it that the Prophet was eventually going to marry me. She said, and when my Idda period was finished, lo and behold, there was a messenger from Najashi, a young woman by the name of Abraha, who came to my door asking permission to enter. And when I allowed her to enter, she said to me that Najashi, the king, um, received a letter from the Prophet ﷺ encouraging him or asking him to marry Um Habiba to him. SubhanAllah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala carried Ramla's or Um Habiba's situation to the heart of a man who saw her as a diamond in the rough. The Prophet ﷺ sent his messenger to propose to her as this is what honorable men do during these times. Honorable men pursue women who honorable men who pursue uh, pursue women who are honorable, giving precedence to their qualities over their circumstances. Some men look at the circumstance of the woman and that's enough to turn him off even though he knows that that woman is a good woman. Giving precedence to her circumstance over the qualities that she embodies. 
Honorable men are able to see past the immediate situation that they are in while honing in on the beauty of who she is. This is something that many men struggle with today, which is why many men end up marrying their fantasy. You go after the fantasy. and That's part of our problem as men. We go after the fantasy. We want the woman who looks like this and the woman of our dreams. And what we really end up doing is forfeiting marrying the beauty that lies underneath all of the fantasy. So we'll bypass this sister, that sister, that sister to get to the fantasy. And then the fantasy doesn't last. Because the fantasy doesn't come with anything other than what's on the surface. What you see is what you get. This is why Prophet Ibrahim, when he passed by Ismail's house, and he asked the wife, Ismail's wife, where's your husband? She said, he's out earning our living. And he said, well, how is your living situation? And she began to complain, we don't have this and we don't have that. Ibrahim's listening and he says to him, when your husband comes home, convey from me the greeting of salam and tell him to change his threshold, meaning to divorce you. Because you're, as much as you are complaining now, Prophet Ibrahim knew that his son was eventually going to become a prophet. His father's a prophet. He's going to be a prophet. His brother's going to be a prophet. You've married into greatness, yet all you do is complain. Go home to your family. You're not built for this. Ibra, uh, Ismail comes home. He said, did anybody come by here today? She said, yes, yeah, some old man came by here today. Ismail said, well, what did he say? He started asking about our living condition, and then he told me to give you the greeting of salam and tell you to change your threshold. What does that even mean? Ismail said, that was my father, Prophet Ibrahim. And him telling me to change my threshold means to tell you you are divorced. Go home to your family. You're not cut out for this. You want the fantasy. You're not cut out for this. And so the Prophet ﷺ proposed to um, Um Habiba. Here he is all the way in Mecca and sends a proposal all the way to Ethiopia. Based upon what he heard of her situation, he saw that this woman, she didn't, turn away, she didn't turn away, she didn't go back to her old lifestyle. She endured and she embraced her greatness. And so as a result of that, he embraced her and he married her. And Um Habiba, she returned to Medina in 7 AH with the group of Muslims who left Ethiopia and came back. Which means that 15 years later, they were in Abyssinia for 15 years. So she was 22 years old at the time she arrived. 52 years, 15 years later, she was how old when she finally got to Medina? 55. 37. She was 37 years old when she finally arrived in Medina and got a chance to be embraced by her husband. SubhanAllah, can you imagine waiting 15 years to be with your husband? Can you imagine knowing that I'm married to this great guy, but I can't get to him because the distance that is between us? And finally, you know, arriving in the city of Medina in the seventh year. And the sad part about that was that she was only with him for three years and a few months because he died in the 11th year, the beginning of the 11th year after Hijrah. You waited 15 years to be with a man and you only spent three years with him.
Subhanallah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed ayat in the Quran, Asallahu ayyaja'ala baynakum wa bayna alladheena aadaytum minhum mawadda. And perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will place between you and those whom you, there was enmity and hatred between you, love. And Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, he said, فَكَانَتِ الْمَوَدَّةَ أَلَّتِي جَعَلَ اللَّهُ بَيْنَهُمْ تَزْوِيجِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أُمْ حَبِيبَ بِنْتَ أَبِي سُفْيَانِ فَصَارَتْ أُمَّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَصَارَ مُعَاوِيَ خَالَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ In this ayat, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and perhaps Allah will place between you, meaning the Muslims, and those whom there was enmity and hatred between you, he will place between you mawadda, love. Ibn Abbas said, the love that was placed between the Muslims and the disbelievers of Quraysh was the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Umm Habibah. His marriage to her was not only due to his respect for her and the qualities that she possessed, but it was also strategic in terms of reuniting the separation of you know, families, people who were at war with one another. Um Habiba was the closest of the Prophet ﷺ's wives to him in terms of his nesab, in terms of lineage. She was part of his family. So was Abu Sufyan and so was many of those who are connected to them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala united the hearts of those who had, you know, enmity and hatred between them through the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ. I mean, you think about it, if Abu Sufyan was his nemesis and he marries Abu Sufyan's daughter, it would look kind of weird, you attacking me and you're my father-in-law. And in Arab society and Arab culture, that would have been Aib, he couldn't do that. So by the Prophet ﷺ simply marrying her, it was a strategic move. It made Abu Sufyan now kind of back off a little bit because this guy is married to my daughter. I can't treat him like a stranger anymore because now he's family. And so you look at that whole situation. So this is what I wanted to present. And there's so much more with, with her story. Um, as you can see, she embraced her situation. And as a result of that, the Prophet ﷺ saw the beauty in who she was, despite her circumstances. And we, we, we can only wish that the men in our day and time in our communities would have even just an inkling, just a little bit of that type of honor to be able to see past the fantasy and the makeup and all of that and see the qualities that many of the women in our communities possess and marry for that. The Prophet ﷺ said, That a woman is married for four reasons, meaning not that we should look for these four reasons, but he's speaking general about his society, his culture. Women are usually married for four reasons. For her beauty. And because of her lineage, her family status, and where she comes from. And because of her wealth. Women were married because they were wealthy during that time. He said, وَلِدِينِهَا And she's married for her deen. He said, فَذْفَرَ بِذَاتِ الدِّينِ تَرِبَتْ يَدَكْ Marry the woman that has deen. And unfortunately, you know what is happening today? Many Muslim women, young Muslim women know that Muslim men are not looking for women with deen. So they kind of shift their focus and their attention to the beauty, the makeup, the tight overgarments, the tight clothes, because they know that this is what attracts the attention of men. So when we condemn women for moving away from the hijab, moving away from the Islamic standards of modesty, 
What we condemn as men, we condemn the Muslim women for doing that. We have to take part responsibility because part of the reason that they're doing that is us. Because they know that we're not looking for deen. They know that. So as a result of that, they say, well, the woman who dresses like this, the woman who acts like this, this is what the men go for, so I'm going to assimilate. Because if Muslim men were actually looking for women with deen, we would have more women inclining towards deen. When a woman knows that that's what a man is looking for, she'll readjust her entire life to get that man. And that's a fact. But they know that we're not really looking for deen. It sounds good in the masjid. MashaAllah, I just want to marry a sister who has religion, who has deen. MashaAllah, you don't. Because a woman who has deen comes with expectations of a man who has deen. You can't have one without the other. We want a woman with deen so that we can say, I married this sister and that sister and MashaAllah. Yeah, but look at you. So, I mean, you know, I just really think that we need to, you know, take another look at what we've done to our communities and change our focus. And if we can't shift the Islamic community, at least on an individual level, we can begin looking at these stories, looking at these individuals and begin working on ourselves. I I am not a stickler for trying to change the whole community. Working on me, I can change me. That's out of my reach. And with that, inshallah ta'ala, we'll stop here. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyu Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam at-taslimin kathira. Wa akhiru da'wana ana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. If you guys have an, any questions or comments, we've got time for that, inshallah.